Are y'all truly happy to be a part of the family of God tonight? Amen. Amen. Fellas, thank you. That is one of my favorite songs of all time. I am certainly glad I'm a part of that family of God. And if you are not, just remember, the invitation is open at all times. You don't have to wait for an invitation. If you want to blaze a trail down the aisle, I'll meet you there. How about that? But um, I want y'all to do me a favor. I've seen miles tonight, but I have told my folks at Antioch, it's real hard to preach to folks that look so serious. So we have a little exercise. My folks from Antioch know what's coming. We have a little exercise out there that we do occasionally. On three, when I count to three, I want you to turn to your neighbor and give them the best, cheesiest grin you got, okay? All right, one, two, three. All right, amen. Look at all them smiles. Listen, folks, the Lord came that we might have life more abundant and free, and sometimes we're walking around like it's costing us an arm and a leg. We can smile, and I promise your face ain't going to crack. If it does, they make super glue. Listen, it's good to be here tonight. And I'm back in my element. I put my coat on tonight. Last night is the first time I ever remember preaching without a coat. But Herbert told me before we come in here, he said, it's youth night, so just let your hair down. Well, I didn't have no hair, so I took my coat off. <laughs> But I'll tell you what, I had a good time last night. I don't know about you guys, but I had a good time. I'll tell you, we were just on the verge of having church last night, and we're going to have church again tonight. You know, revival, as I shared with you yesterday, is getting a fresh glimpse of God, figuring out a little bit more of who He is, getting a glimpse of ourselves, figuring out a little bit better of who we are, and then reacting to those things properly. And so far, we have talked about the fact that we serve an absolutely wonderful Creator. We talked about the fact that He'd given us boundaries for our own good and that if we would follow His rules, His commandments, His judgments, His statutes and stay within the boundaries that He'd given us, that it would be to our benefit. And boy, those benefits were just out of the world, wasn't they? I mean, good gracious, the things we talked about last night, that's enough to make you want to praise the Lord. But we're going to continue that tonight as we continue through the week looking at the Ten Commandments. Now, believe it or not, we're going to do that starting at Psalm 23. You say, well, I, I don't know the Bible back to front, but I know that the Ten Commandments ain't in Psalm 23. Just trust me on this one. Turn to Psalm 23, and then we will get, as your screen says, back to Deuteronomy 5 in a message entitled, Good God. Now, that is not my veiled attempt to use some type of cleaned-up profanity. I mean what I say, Good God. And we're going to look and just see how good God is. I think to say that He's a good God is an understatement, but the title of the message is Good God, and it's going to actually lead us into one of the commandments that insists that we never use His name in any other fashion except for to say something good. And you know where I'm headed with that one. But we're going to look at four commandments tonight. As we look at those, we find that all four of the first commandments deal with our relationship with God and how we ought to respond to a holy God. As we continue through the week, we'll look at six commandments that deal with how we should deal with one another, how we should respond to society and to each other as a Christian family. And again, we are going to just continue to have a good time together. I do want to say real quickly, though, I really do appreciate one of our deacons being here tonight. I tell you, Kevin came last night. Here he is again tonight. And, you know, he has heard me preach so many times, I figured the brother would want a break. So I said, man, don't you want a break from this every now and then? He said, you know, I, I, no, I just wanted to come hear you. And I said, really? I mean, you know, don't you want a break? He said, no, not really. I said, well, I appreciate the support. I really do. He said, well, I don't know if it's so much support. I've just heard that every preacher's got one fantastic sermon, and I'm going to follow you till I hear yours. 
So, Kevin, thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> Nonetheless, I hope whether I preach a good sermon, you recognize by the end of this night we serve a good God. And we're going to do that beginning at Psalm 23, a very familiar passage. I doubt there's many people in here that couldn't recite it from heart. But let's look at this thing together and read Psalm 23. I'm going to begin in verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures, and he leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, and my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And I thank you that as David reached the later years of his life, that he had recognized that you truly were the Good Shepherd. He understood in all the ebbs and flows and all the mountains and valleys of his life that you were the constant, that you were far beyond just a Good Shepherd. You were a wonderful and awesome, a good God. And you had been awfully good to him. Father, as we go through this psalm tonight, I pray that we would be able to recognize that you have been just these things in our life as well and more. And I pray that as we leave here, keeping those first four commandments would just be automatic because we have once again been reminded of just how wonderful you are to us. But most of all, God, I pray now that you would speak to your people. And I pray it in your precious name. Amen. Now, you know, as we read this, we just sort of read it on the surface level most of the time, glaze right through it, and don't think much of it, but I'll tell you what, there is an incredible amount of doctrine and theology right here in this song written by the aged David. Now, you know the story of David. Here's a man who had basically committed murder, fornication, adultery. He had lied like the Dickens. The fellow even uh, practiced dancing in the streets naked. I mean, this guy was a scandalous fellow if you really think about it. But on the other hand, he was known as a man after God's own heart. And the reason is he was a repentant sinner, and God is a merciful God. He recognized who God was, and he came back to God. And he is recognizing now, as he's later in life, that God truly is a good God. And so as we look at this, I just want to pull this all to pieces with you, and I want you to follow along as I hope you'll see Psalm 23 in a way you've never seen it before. First of all, in verse 1, it says, "...the Lord is my shepherd." That is a definite article. It doesn't mean maybe. It means He is. Folks, if you are a Christian, the Lord is your shepherd. What does that mean? Well, what does it mean when we have a shepherd on this planet who has a flock of maybe sheep or goats or whatever? It means they're going to do whatever in the world it takes to look after their sheep. It's going to take care of those sheep. And our shepherd loves us so much that not only does He look after us, He has committed the greatest act of love imaginable to humankind. In John 10 and 11, it says that I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd layeth down his life for the sheep. You know, scriptures tell me that greater love hath no man than to give his life for another. Our shepherd, the Lord, gave his very life for you and me. Would anybody be so bold as to stand and say, I deserve that? I deserved him dying for me. Folks, I'll tell you, that just makes me feel so, so important to know that the sovereign of the universe loved me enough as one of his flock that he himself died for me. 
So first of all, he is your shepherd, and he's such a good shepherd that he died for you. Then it goes on to say, I shall not want. Well, I like that. We touched on that benefit last night. Why would we want for anything? Now, we're human, and when we get one thing, we want the next thing. If we get a 2012 vehicle, we really can't wait for the 2013s, right? Because they're going to change it just enough to make us keep wanting them. We always want something, but we really have no legitimate wants in life. Because as I said last night, as we look at Matthew 6, verses 25 through 33, He will provide your needs. You will not have to worry about whether you're going to be clothed. That's what He said, not me. You're not going to have to worry about whether you eat or not, or whether you have shelter. He said, I'm going to provide your needs. And as we discussed last night, He even said, if you will delight yourself in me, the Good Shepherd, I'll even give you the delights and desires of your heart. Sounds like a good deal so far to me. How about you? And it goes on to say, He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. First of all, it's Him that does that. It's God that makes it possible for you to lie down in green pastures. We say, well, I haven't laid down in a green pasture in years. I used to love playing in the pasture. We used to love playing kickball in the pasture. It was dangerous, though. I tell you, you slide into what you thought was third base, and you better be careful. <laughs> but... You say, I haven't really laid down in a green pasture in a long time. Listen, the green pastures represent undeserved blessings. Can any of you really say that you have been given everything that you deserve in life? Because when we think about what we deserve, it's pretty much nothing, isn't it? But we've got so many blessings. Most of you drove in here on a decent vehicle tonight. You had a good meal. Boy, I know I did. Thank you for those who fed me tonight. I even snuck out the back door with two tenderloin biscuits and two cupcakes for morning. They said the cupcakes were for the boys, but I, all I can say is they ain't with me. They can fend for themselves. But we're blessed, folks. Undeserved blessings. Listen, if I'd have got just one biscuit, that'd been enough, really. I could have got by on that. But I had, let's see, one biscuit, piece of chicken, a little taste of salmon, Gosh, I got some potatoes, making you hungry yet? I see cake and pie and Mountain Dew. I could go on. Listen, we have undeserved blessings, and I'm not trying to be flippant. The point is we've got way more than we need, way more than we deserve. Oh, I just tell folks all the time in counseling because they'll say, I don't deserve this. And I say, whoa, hold on, don't ask for what you deserve because you don't want it. Okay, don't. But God is the one who makes it possible for us to have those undeserved blessings. What we deserve is death, folks. All of us deserve to be taking a dirt bath right now. Romans 3.23 and Romans 6.23 combined says that we are all sinners and we deserve the wages of sin, which is death. And yet God has given us life and all of the blessings that we have in it. That's what it means when we read that the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. It's not what you're doing. You say, well, I work hard to have what I have. Where'd you get life from? Where do you get breath from? It's God that's making that possible. As we move on, it says, He leadeth me beside the still waters. Well, I love that. Again, it's Him doing it. And He's the one that's leading. I wonder, is God your shepherd or are you just running off doing your own thing like a stupid sheep? Sheep really are stupid animals. I'm not trying to call you stupid, but if you're not following the shepherd, you're in danger. It's just like a flock of sheep out in the pasture. 
if one strays and the shepherd doesn't love them enough to go get them and pull them back in, they're liable to be taken out by a wolf because they're not with the group, not being looked after by the shepherd. Matter of fact, the shepherds usually love them so much if they keep wandering away, they'll take that staff and break their legs so they can't wander away anymore because better a broken leg than a dead sheep and lamb chops for the wolves. But it's him that leads us. And if we will remember the truth of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, that we would not lean on our own understanding, but trust in the Lord and acknowledge him with all our hearts and lives, he will direct our paths. And as God directs our paths, we will be saved. Never was there a shepherd who would lead his sheep into harm's way on purpose, and God will not do that to you. You can trust him to lead you. And it says, beside the still waters, that just represents peace. And that's the one thing we all want in life. It's just a little peace. It really is. I see a lot of nodding heads. We live in a chaotic world, don't we? There's a lot going on. What these fellas got to singing earlier about I won't have to worry anymore. Man, I can't wait. I can't wait, but you know, even now, we can have some peace. Because, see, peace is not the absence of a storm, folks. It's the presence of God with you in the storm. And He will lead you to peace if, again, you will acknowledge Him and follow the path He's laid. He will give you that peace that's promised in Matthew 11 and 28. He says, Come unto me, all ye that are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. I'll give you peace. I don't care what it is you're going through. As I said last night, we serve a big God. Whatever it is, He's bigger. And He's on the job for us. Beautiful as we move through this psalm, isn't it? As we move on to the next verse, it says, He restoreth my soul. How many of you are able to do that? Any of you able to restore your own soul? I'm not even sure I can get my hands on it. We all have that soul, which is the eternal part of who we are. And before you accepted Christ, the truth is your soul was bound for a very real place called hell. Modern theology, liberal theology would have you believe that hell is just sort of separation from God. Or it's really just a myth. Herbert and I were talking about that earlier. He actually heard a preacher speak right out of his mouth that hell was just a myth. Folks, Jesus preached about hell and money more than he did anything else in the Bible. It's not just separation from God. It is that and so much more. It's a very real place of torment created for Satan and his angels. If we go, we go uninvited. But if you will not accept the gift of eternal life from God, how can he possibly restore your soul? But if we do, that's the beautiful thing, it's a done deal. It says, believe in your heart and confess with your mouth and you shall be saved. That shall be saved is a definite article and it has infinite capacity. It means that it happens at that point when you accept Him and it lasts for eternity. Again, speaking to some of the weird theology that's out there these days that you can lose your salvation. Listen, it says in the Scriptures that once you're His, not even Satan can pluck you out of His hands. It's a done deal. You're either saved or you're not. Either His blood was enough to cleanse you or it isn't, and it is. But it's an ongoing process that we read of here. The Hebrew is an interesting language. It was one that I barely made it through in seminary. I'll just be honest with you. I memorized enough to pass the test. But what I know this is saying is that it's a done deal and it's an ongoing process. You're saved. Your soul is safe. But he's constantly trying to clean you up. It's called sanctification. I hope that you can say right now that you are further along in your Christian walk than you were a year ago. If you can't, it's time to do something about it. 
You're either moving forward or you're going backwards with the Lord because He's not standing still. So He restoreth our soul. Aren't you glad that He can do that? What a powerful God. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says that we are all being changed daily to be like Him from glory to glory. Moving on, it says, He leads me in the path of righteousness, which is another reminder of His guidance and what He wants to provide for His name's sake. He leads you in the path of righteousness. Folks, I just don't know what to do. I'm not sure what it is I'm supposed to do in life. It's because you're not reading the instructions and not acknowledging Him and not letting Him direct your path. If you stay on your knees constantly in a relationship with the Lord and you stay in His Word, you're going to know which way to go. You're going to know what to do. And I hear folks say sometimes, well, the Lord led me to do it and it just didn't work out. That's a lie. If the Lord leads you to do it, it works out. Maybe not like you wanted it to, but if the Lord leads you to do it, it's going to work out. It's the fact that we don't recognize the voice of the Lord or we tend to let our own conscience get in the way sometimes is the problem because God will always lead you in the paths of righteousness, which means the right way. Why? Because it's His name that's at stake. He will lead you right if you will follow Him because your witness and His name is at stake. And I told you last night how important this is. Folks, we've got to do what He asks us to do. Not just speak it, but do it. Because people are watching. And if people are watching us so-called Christians out there doing everything just like anybody else and not walking in the path of righteousness, what do you think that does to the name of Christianity? Do you think that encourages anybody to want to come to the Lord? No. Stick with Him and let your shepherd lead you. Remember this. We are the savor of life or death unto those we come in contact with. The way you live, the way you act, the things you say are either leading people closer to the Lord or further away. God forbid we'd be pushing them away. 2 Corinthians 2 tells us that if you'd like to write that down and you're taking notes that we are the savor of life or death unto those we contact. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shared that last night too. Uncomfortable as it is, we all have an expiration date. We will leave this planet one day unless the rapture happens before then. Boy, what a neat thing that would be just to be raptured on out of here and go home with the Lord before all the mess starts. But if it doesn't, we will all die. And you know what? I'm okay with that because I won't have to worry anymore, fellas. We'll have to worry about nothing anymore, but we are going to die. And we are going to walk into the valley of the shadow of death. But one of the most comforting words in all of Scripture is found there in verse 4. It says, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You see, I just made you feel real good by telling you, you're all going to die. That doesn't feel good. But when I tell you, you're not walking into the valley of the shadow of death to stay, but walking right through it onto the mountain of eternal life, that feels a lot better, doesn't it? What a good God we serve. That even though... We are each day dying just a little bit, heading towards expiration. We get to walk into the valley of the shadow of death and right out of it. And when we do, we don't have to fear anything. It says, I will fear no evil. Not just a little bit. I'll just be a little bit afraid. No. I don't have to fear any evil because you are with me. God is with you. He said, I'd never leave or forsake you. Romans 8.31 says, If God be for you, who can be against you? 
And the answer to that question is obvious, nobody. If God's on your side, you're okay. Even when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And even as we walk through this life, if God be for you, who can be against you? It talks about His rod and His staff and how they comfort us. I've already told you, a shepherd's staff is used to sort of rein us in, to bring us back. And He's constantly trying to do that for us. As we sort of get off the path, He's saying, come on, child, get back over here. I mean, He has to do it with me all the time. He uses His staff to knock me over the head quite often. I'll just be honest with you. It's like, David, am I having to tell you this again? Get back in line. I'm glad he's got a staff. I'm glad he loves me enough to pull me in. I'm glad he loves me enough to break my leg so I don't have to do something even worse. That rod and that staff, they sort of give you the sense of comfort and of chastening because the Scriptures teach us that too. In Hebrews 12, 6 through 8, it says that he chastens those whom he loves. And I'm glad of that. I'm glad my Heavenly Father loves me that much. I don't know about you folks, but I spank my children, and if you want to call social services on me, I've got them in speed dial. I just believe what the Scripture says, that uh, sometimes you can't reason with a young child and just set them down for a while and make things right. So I spank my children. I don't beat my children. I don't hurt my children, but I spank them. And I'm glad I have a Lord that loves me enough to spank me when I need it. I really am. He chastens me because He loves me and He wants to protect me and pull me back towards those commandments, back towards the boundaries so that I'm safe and not out there where I can do damage to myself or to the name of Christ. Moving on, it says that He prepares the table before me in the presence of my enemies. Did you catch that? He prepares. God is on the job for you right now if you belong to Him. He is doing something for you. Right now, preparing a table for you. Well, that's a good thing. We love to sit down to a table. Man, out at Antioch, and apparently here at Theresa too, we ain't meeting if we ain't eating. We like to sit down and eat. There's good fellowship. There's good food. And apparently there's going to be a little bit of that in heaven. There's the marriage feast of the Lamb and all kind of talk about stuff like that in heaven. And I think it's going to be slam full of cheese and Doritos because that's two of my favorite things on the planet. I'm just not, I'll probably go home tonight and, and melt some cheese over Doritos. Oh, we don't have none? Oh. Well, at least we've got to go by the grocery store, Herbert. <laughs> but we love to sit down at the table, is my point. We love to eat. We love to fellowship and break bread together. God Himself is on the job preparing a table for us. And guess where He's putting the table? In the presence of our enemies. I don't know about that. Seems a little uncomfortable for me to be sitting at a table eating having fun when my enemies are watching. You know, we try to distance ourselves from our enemies. We miss the point if we're reading it that way. It shows us that God will vindicate us. That while those who have harmed us and wronged us and done everything they could to sidetrack us are there watching with nothing to eat and no good fellowship in misery, we're having a party. What does that tell me? It tells me that I don't have to get revenge on the folks that are messing around with me on this planet. Because I am reminded that vengeance belongs to the Lord from Romans chapter 12, verses 19 through 21. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I don't worry about it. Listen, I have had people tell me the darndest things. I mean, really, I mean, it's just amazing what will come out of somebody's pie hole when they open their mouth at you, you know? I, I'm just thinking, really, did you just say that to me? And just really step all over your feelings. But I'll tell you, my wife will tell you, I'll just sort of fuss a little bit and say, I can't believe they've done it, and I'm, I'm done with it. 
I leave it alone. I don't try to concoct a plan to see if I can talk Herbert into pouring sugar in their gas tank. I don't try to figure out how I can railroad them or you know, blaspheme them or defame them or slander them or anything else because God's going to take care of that. And that's what this is pointing to. What a good God. You with me on that? You agree so far? Y'all still awake? Okay. I hear a little noise back here, but y'all are starting to slow down back there. Now, come on. Got a little. Hang with me. And it says, Thou anointest my head with oil. When someone's head was anointed with oil in Scripture, it wasn't just to give them a good conditioning job. Okay? Really what? It was to indicate that they were someone special. It was for healing. It was for royalty. It was a special thing in Scripture. It's always represented that way. Ecclesiastes 7.1 talks about that beautiful and special perfumed oil that someone special receives. But God Himself, the Good Shepherd Himself, will anoint our head with oil showing how much He loves us and showing how much He wants to heal all the hurts and the wounds that we've ever experienced in life. What a good God. What a good God. We are so blessed. He goes on to say, My cup runneth over. One of the youth I worked with for years over at Antioch, and she has now grown up and gotten married and had kids, which just blows me away. Because I mean, I got her when she was in elementary school, but now she's grown and got her own kids, and it, I'm, just, I'm not that old. I don't know what happened. But anyway, she had put something on this thing called Facebook. Most of y'all know what Facebook is. It's a great thing, and it's an awful thing all at once. But she had put this thing on Facebook, and most of the time I don't pay much attention to the post, but this one just said, I am so blessed that my cup's running over and I'm drinking out of the saucer. Well, I like that. Yeah, a lot of folks these days don't even know what a saucer is, but I can remember my, my grandmother, we called her Mima. She'd make coffee, which was 90% milk, about 10% coffee, but she'd make it and set it in a saucer and intentionally spill it over into the saucer so she could slurp it, I think, because that's where she got most of her coffee from. Just slurp that mess right out of the saucer. Listen, I'm going to tell you, I love the fact that God is blessing me so much that it's not just my cup's full, it's running over and I'm drinking out of the saucer. And if we'd stop and take inventory, we'd all admit we are too. You may not have all you want, and you may not think you have all you need, but you're blessed. Did you hear what I was sharing about those folks in Africa and the Ukraine and down in Peru last night? I'm telling you, these folks got less than nothing. We are blessed. Our cup runneth over, and it's that good God that we serve that has done that. Moving along, it says, surely, which is another definite article. It doesn't say, I hope or maybe goodness and mercy are going to follow me. It says, surely, definitely, goodness, the blessings, again, that we don't deserve, and mercy, which is forgiveness when we don't deserve it. Aren't you glad God's merciful? Think for just a moment of just the top ten sins in your life. And aren't you glad God's merciful? I sure am. I bet we don't have any murderers in here. Probably don't have any grand theft uh, folks in here or anything of the sort, but we're all sinners. And I'm glad God's merciful and wiped them all away. But surely, definitely, goodness and mercy will follow me. Again, shall, that definite article. It's going to follow me. It's going to chase me. How you like that? Mercy and goodness are going to chase me for the rest of the days of my life. That's just what it says right there, all the days of my life. I like the fact that no matter what I do, where I go, if I'm following the Lord and in His path, the Good Shepherd's going to make sure that good things and mercy are chasing me down. Well, I love that. Finally, it says, I will, another definite article, not a maybe. I will, one of our greatest benefits, dwell, which means live in the midst of 
the house of the Lord forever. It don't say I'm probably going to live with the Lord or somewhere near him a few blocks down for a little while. It says I will dwell, live in the midst of the house of the Lord forever. Folks, let me just ask you something now. Having said all of that, do you agree we serve a good God? That was about a third of you. Do you agree we serve a good God? Amen. It's all right, folks. You can say amen. It don't hurt a thing. Makes you feel good too, don't it? We serve a good God. So turn over to Deuteronomy 5. You think, good grief, is that just his introduction? No, we're getting there. We're getting there. I'll get you home for breakfast. And don't bother me anyway. I got my tenderloin biscuits out in the truck. Back to where we started yesterday morning. Deuteronomy chapter 5, written about 1500 B.C. by Moses. He has given the law again to a new generation of Israelites, reminding them of the things that matter. Now, based on the fact that we serve such an incredible God that we just described so aptly from Psalm 23, wouldn't it make sense that we would have no other gods before Him? Wouldn't it make sense that we wouldn't make any idols and worship idols instead of Him? Wouldn't it make sense that we would never take His name in vain? And wouldn't it make sense that if He said we need to get a little rest here and there to honor Him, we'd do it? I'm asking a question, doesn't it? It seems to me that if we understand what we just learned about God in Psalm 23, that the first four commandments will fall right into place. And this is important, folks. These first four commandments are wrapped up in what Jesus said in Matthew 22, that the first and the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. If there's one thing you're going to do in life and try to get it right, it better be love the Lord with all you are. And here's the specific ways we do that. He says in verse 6, I am the Lord thy God, and we need to make that sure. You need to make sure He is your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. We weren't in the house of Egypt, but we were in bondage to sin, and He brought us out of that. So thou shalt have none other gods before me. It didn't say... You can have a couple of others, or maybe just one more, as long as he's not the most important, and I'm the number one. It says you should have no other gods before me. I listed a few yesterday, and I hope I stepped all over your toes, because the ones I listed are the most common. It's stuff, and family, and money, and jobs. But let me tell you something. None of that is going to matter when you leave this earth. We just determined we're going to walk into the valley of the shadow of death. How many of you are going to be able to take any of that stuff with you? None of you. I believe it was George Strait that said that he'd never seen a luggage rack on a hearse. It's because you can't take it with you. Everything that you are fighting and scrapping for and trying to amass will one day either rust, break down, or belong to somebody else, or at least be around for them to fight over who's going to get it. I am determined to spend every penny I ever make so that my kids won't have nothing to fight over. I mean, they can make their own doggone way. Why do I want to leave a bunch of stuff? Ain't no danger of it anyway in a preacher's salary, is it, Herbert? <laughs> so put him right on the spot. Now, he didn't say nothing. <laughs> the truth is, anything can be your God. I see so often that sports become a person's God. Now, here we go. You better pick your feet up. I don't know how you folks feel about sports. I really don't care because I know what God said. I cannot tell you the times that folks are not in church because their kid has a ball game. Shame on you. Ain't none of your kids going to be good enough to go pro anyway. You hear me? I mean, I ain't trying to be ugly, but what's the chances? And if they really that big a star, you'll know. 
But I think everybody wants to live vicariously through their kids and be that superstar that they couldn't be. And so they somehow let that or dance or karate or something else get in the way of them being in the Lord's house. What else is that but putting something else in front of God? I don't know how else to describe it. And it's not right. But we've made it a cultural norm and nobody, including the preacher, wants to ruffle any feathers so nothing's said. I'm saying it. I'm saying I'm not up here to make you happy. I'm up here to try to make a difference in your life so you can find joy. Happiness is a piece of pizza for me, but it goes away in an hour. I want joy at last, and that's what I want for you. No other gods before him. Psalm 23, the good shepherd, the good God. And good is an understatement. What else should come before him? Nothing. We've got to get back to that basic. And once we do that, a lot of things will change if we don't do anything else that I talk about the rest of the week. God's got to be number one. And I don't mean just at the top of a list of priorities. God has got to dwell in your heart in such a way that He's sitting on the throne and nothing else is crowding Him out. The second one says, You should not make any graven image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that's in the waters beneath the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself unto them nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. But I'm the same God, showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Is that saying that we're not supposed to have any art or anything like that sitting around? Not at all. If you read the building of the tabernacle, there were a whole lot of images that were made and cast out of precious metals or carved out of wood that were right there in the temple as part of the worship ceremony. God didn't have an issue with that. We have to take this in context. We have to understand it means that we don't have an idol and we bow down to it and worship. Several of our folks left and went over to Southeast Asia last year where there is great darkness in the world. I'm telling you, it's just you wouldn't believe it. They climbed up these steps about an hour, hour and a half, I think they said, and they get to this one little place where all these idols are there and people are there burning incense to the idols, hoping the idols are going to take away their pain or their sickness or any of their diseases or problems that they've got. And that's just the first tier. If you climb for about another hour up the mountain on these rugged steps and these just aggravating little trenches and paths, there's another one, and that's if you've got real big problems. You know, you want to burn incense to them, and it shows more effort by going higher. And then if you, that doesn't do it, going up a little bit higher to these images of fat little Chinese men that can't do anything and never did. I mean, the, golly, Buddha was so fat. How did he do anything for himself, much less anybody else? But I'm not picking on weight. I'm just talking about graven images that cannot do a thing. But I'm not talking about just having a little statue sitting around. Now, listen, I hate those things. I'll be honest. Thank goodness Missy doesn't do any of that. But I go into some houses and they got all these little figurines and I feel like people just staring at me. Everywhere I look, these little figures are just staring at me. I get paranoid, you know. But then on the other hand, I'm the guy that loves trains, so I've got this beautifully hand-carved wooden train sitting right on my desk. That's not what it's talking about. I don't bow down and worship that train. As a matter of fact, I don't even dust it as often as I should, and like I promised my wife I would. But nonetheless, the point is... If you have no other God before him, you shouldn't have any other idols. And at that point in history, we don't have that kind of situation like the, the children of Israel did. But at that point in history, they were good about making idols. I mean, Moses went up on the mountain one time to talk to God before he could even get down good. They had done taken all the jewelry and made a cow out of it. 
And they had the, the mascot for the golden corral down there worshiping. I mean, what's a golden cow going to do for you? But that's the point. The big point for us is that should have no other gods and don't have any idols that you bow down to, whether that be in the figurative or the literal sense. Moving on, it says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that takes his name in vain. He says, in other words, if you take my name in vain, I'm not happy and you're guilty. Now, I'm thankful for mercy. And as a Christian, you are forgiven. But if you are a genuine Christian, I really have a hard time believing you could take the Lord's name in vain. I do. I just question your salvation at all. It's not for me to judge. I'm just saying it's hard for me to believe somebody that understands that good God that we talked about from Psalm 23 could say God's name and use it in a way that is negative. Because there is nothing negative about my God. And it's not just the GD word. I hate that one. I mean, yeah, I, I understand that there's another word that's supposed to be the prince of profanity, but that's the worst one to me. And I'm going to tell you, I don't care where I am. My wife is so non-confrontational, but I don't care where I am. If I hear that word, I'm going to say something. I'm going to say something. I might get shot one day, but that's okay because I will surely dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I'm okay with that. But I'm just not going to listen to it. It offends me in a deep way. It's not just that word, though, folks. How many times... Are you doing something that doesn't work out? Jesus. Sounds a lot worse coming out of the pulpit, doesn't it? But how many times do we do that? I hear it all the time. Oh, good Lord. We don't mean he's a good Lord when we say it that way. We're saying it out of frustration and disgust. And the Lord has no association with frustration or disgust. You need to clean up your language if you're doing that because it is a command, again, not a suggestion. And God will not bless you. It ain't going to make you feel no better for saying it. Matter of fact, if you're a genuine Christian, you're going to feel a whole lot worse, and there will be discipline to follow, even if it's nothing but just an immense sense of guilt. Moving right along, it says, Keep the Sabbath day and sanctify it as the Lord thy God hath commanded thee. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. And boy, y'all been waiting to see how I was going to deal with this one. Say, wow, we're supposed to keep the Sabbath day? Do you even know what the Sabbath day is? Somebody tell me, what is the actual Sabbath? Saturday. It's not Sunday. Bless y'all's heart. Every last one of you sinned on Saturday. Every last one of y'all was doing something Saturday working, and so was I. This is the one place I'll take a little bit of a side tangent and say that it's a little different for us in the New Testament covenant. He's saying, if we read this in context, he's saying that the Lord created the earth in six days and on the seventh day he rested. And under the Mosaic covenant, they were supposed to observe a day of rest just like the Lord did. Now, in the New Testament, we understand that the Lord's Supper, as Paul argued, and this is something you'll have to dig into yourself, but Paul argued that the Lord's Supper represented the new covenant and it sort of stepped into the place of this. But I'm not going to tell you I don't want you to keep observing a time of rest. Even though Saturday has sort of been taken over by the Lord's Day, which was the first day the early church got together, we observe Sunday as the Lord's Day. I will encourage you to get your work done in six days and take a break. Because you know even Jesus Christ came apart early in the morning to be with the Lord. He rested so that He wouldn't come apart. We are human, folks. You are not created to run 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Health-wise, I can speak to this. I worked in the hospital almost 14 years. I can tell you it's hard to keep balance in these old bodies. 
It's called homeostasis, when everything's just like it's supposed to be. And that's a hard thing to achieve this day and time with all the contaminants around us. But do you know the one thing that we can do to make a difference and be more balanced is get enough rest. Folks, it's okay to take a break. God did. So take a break. You say, are you telling me that commandment's not important? It was critical to the children of Israel. He told them, I want you to do this in remembering the Mosaic Covenant. I want you to rest remembering and memorializing the fact that I, your Lord, created everything in six days, and I want you to rest like I did on the seventh. So now I'm encouraging you to rest, and I'm commanding you to take of the Lord's Supper if you belong to Him. Now this could go a lot deeper and Herbert's sitting there saying, oh, Lord, people are going to ask me a million questions because he has left a lot of loose ends. Well, Herbert, that's your job. Just answer the question. <laughs> Listen. The point is real simple. The point is real simple. Do you, and I want response on this one. This is not rhetorical. Do you believe that we serve a good God? Amen. Do you believe that good is an understatement? Amen. Then will you join me and what I think should be our obvious response to that in making Him number one in your life and having no other God or graven image before Him and making sure that the name of the Lord is always associated with something good when it comes out of your mouth and take a rest and remember how powerful your Lord was that He could create everything we know in six literal days and then take a break. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much that you're so good to us. What an incredible shepherd you are. Father, we would not even exist without you, much less would we be in the condition and the state we are. And were it not for the fact that you are the good shepherd that laid down his life for the sheep, our soul would need restoring and never have a way to be restored. We would be utterly without hope. So God, we thank you and I pray more than just lip service and saying thank you, that we will live out these four of the Ten Commandments with all that we are to show you thank you and to show you we love you. Father, if we would but do this, we would turn this community on its ear and we'd see people begging to get into these doors because they'd see a difference. God, we know we've failed you in this way in a lot of ways. We've let a lot of things get in our life before you and we've just given you what was left over. We come to church not as the rule but as the exception if we don't have something else happening. We do things for you if it's convenient. But Father, we understand from the book of Malachi, you don't want our leftovers. You turn your nose up at it. You want everything we have in the very beginning. You are a jealous God. You love us so much you don't want anybody else to have a part of us until you get yours. Father, really, we know it's the way it ought to be, so forgive us. And Father, I pray tonight that you would speak to your people's hearts and during this invitation, draw them to spend time with you in apology and in rededication. And if there is one here tonight that has not made you the Lord their God, please help them to understand, God, that they have an invitation to an eternal bliss and even a life of peace here as opposed to a life of eternal damnation. Move them, God, as you see fit. And I pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.